Welcome to Foreplay Radio. Today we're going to get a chance to know a little bit about Lori's story. Hey, you're listening to Foreplay Radio for couples and sex therapy with your host, myself, Lori Watson, sex therapist, and George Fowler, expert couples therapist. George and I are counselors, educators, authors, researchers, contributors, and leaders in our field with a collective 50 years of experience working with couples and sex therapy. We're grounded in the best and most scientific research from attachment theory with our emphasis on emotionally focused therapy. Using all we've learned from our clients, our work, and our own lives, we want to have this open, frank, and informative conversation about love and sex to help you and your partner keep it hot. Before we start, I want to let you know, Lori, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts with Adam, and I'm a big fan. I think it's really intriguing how much I was learning and what I realize I don't know about sex and, you know, getting people look at a marriage therapist supposed to be the expert. And I was like, wait, I don't know this. I don't know that. I don't know this. So, you know, I'm so glad of the the work you and Adam have done. And and I hope that I can keep that momentum going just to normalize this struggle to understand what this is and how do we do it in a better way? What is great sex? Well, we'll make you an expert. All right. I (laughs) I don't know if I'll ever get to the expert, but close enough is good enough for me. So I was thinking, Laurie, I talked a little bit last time about some of what led me to this moment. I'm curious about your background. How did you become a sex therapist? I know. It's such a question. I, I actually, um, my mother told me about sex when I was really young, and she was very positive. She'd grown up without any knowledge about it and could hardly wait kind of to have a daughter to talk to about it. And I was very young, of course it was all appropriate, but I had gone to a candlelit wedding when I was about four or five, and I was completely entranced by this whole thing. And that was about the same time I learned about sex, and my mom made me this costume that was a bride's costume with a veil and the whole bit. And so much of my early childhood was just all about growing up to be the bride, the have babies, and and all of that was my life script. And so I know you said never wanted to get married, and I always (laughs) wanted to get married. (laughs) That was it. But my family life uh, grew pretty tough. Uh, My dad was this kind of rough and tough cowboy from Montana. He drank and fought his way across the state working on the railroads, actually with my grandfather, who was a figure in my life who loved and adored me and I think probably saved my psychological life wow. uh, because of his calling me beautiful and and truly giving me unconditional love. But then Dad decided to enlist in World War II and fight some more, and he literally walked onto the beaches in Iwo Jima uh, into gunfire. And you got to respect somebody who absolutely walks into danger for love and country. But... He married my mother, who was uh, really smart. She was a teacher, and she was creative and strong. But both of them had suffered early trauma in life. My dad had lost his mother, Mm -hmm. and then, of course, probably had PTSD from the war. And my mother had suffered several traumas. And mom couldn't do anything but emotions, and my dad couldn't do emotions at all. But they sort of settled on anger. And so it was, um, 
a fairly chaotic household uh, that I was growing up in. And then when I was about 11, I remember my mom crawling into bed with me in the morning and saying, you know, your father and I are getting a divorce. Mm. And things got even more chaotic. Somehow or another, I still held on to this hope. And I mean, as you and I know that as therapists, sometimes people idealize even more what they are missing. And I certainly idealized relationship and marriage and all of that. And Just a highlight for that, that we don't get a choice of our family members, but we all want that love, you know, even for people that struggle and make bad decisions, that longing in our hearts to just kind of redeem. And, you know, it just always reminds me of the power of love. I, I agree. I agree. I think when I started dating, I kind of told myself, first of all, I am never going to repeat what happened. Mm. And and that was definitely inside me. But I I kind of fell in love with every boy, you know. <laughs> I And they none of them fell in love with me, I will tell you that. I, I pined a lot for boys who didn't seem to notice me. Um, I was in a church group, and I think I liked every boy in the group, and they didn't seem to notice me at all. <laughs> and I was the one who, you know, on the first date, I'd be writing Mrs. John Smith. It, it was... It was ridiculous, but, um, and I don't know why exactly, why I didn't date that much. I was fit and relatively attractive, and uh, but I had very high standards, and I was part of this really rigid faith community, and I think that for me, that was a antidote to some of the chaos in my family. It kind of mm. helped keep me safer and gave me some structure, so... After pining for all these boys, finally there was this new guy who came on the scene. And we met at a pool party. And I still, in my mind, remember him pulling himself out of the pool and just <laughs> like the water dripping off him. And I thought, oh my, he is a god. You know, I mean, like he was just, scene. he was so hot. And uh, we went out together with a bunch of other people that evening. And, and I'm like, you know, not only is he hot, but he's super smart, which was really important to me. And I didn't, I didn't actually like him at that moment other than I was very attracted to him. And, and then he came back about a year later after he finished college to our community. And I thought, ah, the boy from Jersey is back. And then I think I, as all good pursuers would do, I asked him out. <laughs> And he said no. And so, again, I asked Matt again, and he said no. And so I can't remember what the excuse was, but I said, you know what? I am so done with pining for boys. I'm just done. And I decided I'm, I'm getting over it. I'm not going to do this pattern of always liking somebody, maybe for a year, and then barely noticing me. So right. I said, that's it. And my girlfriend, uh, my roommate, was dating his roommate. And so she and I were going off to this women's retreat, and her parents were staying with us because they were in the area to do some cancer treatment. And Lisa says to her mother, oh, yeah, you know, blah, 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 last-minute instructions. And when Ken calls her boyfriend, tell him I love him and all this. And I said, yeah, yeah. And when Derek calls, tell him I love him too, knowing the man is never going to call. So we get back from the retreat, and um, Mrs. Arad is there as we're unpacking and stuff. And at some point, she goes, oh, Laurie, your young man friend called, and I gave him the message. 
And I said, oh my God, you know, who called? What message? She said, well, Derek called. And I told him you loved him. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, oh, the man finally calls, you know, this guy that I've been drooling over for about eight months. And uh, and I thought, okay, well, he's he's never going to call again. And I called my pastor's wife. I said, oh, you know, what do I do? And she's like, call him back and lie, make something up. <laughs> so I called him back and made up this lie. And then I saw him at church that night and, you know, and he said, oh, yeah, I was just calling to see when you guys were getting back. I'm like, oh, great. I burned a lie for this. But then, of course, he eventually did ask me out and we fell in love and then we got married. So we want to remind all of you that we are thankful for the way you've shared the podcast. We continue to grow. It is our greatest honor when you share with a friend the work that we're doing in trying to help people reframe their sexual life in a way that is understandable and not so mysterious so that they can make positive changes and strengthen their marriages and their partnerships. Hey, I want to let you guys know all about George. He's written and contributed to several books, and I'd especially like to draw your attention to his book, Sacred Stress, a radically different approach to using life's challenges for positive change. His book is about a mission on how you adopt new strategies and turn stresses into a positive force in your life. And who among us doesn't live with a lot of stress these days? We'll keep you posted as to all he's doing. But George and other EFT therapists all around the country and the world hold couples retreats called Hold Me Tight, which is developed by Sue Johnson, and it helps secure your own relationship. If you'd like therapy with George, find him at georgefowler.com. So it sounds like a pretty standard and remarkable love story. So how do you go from that, which most of us can relate to, to becoming a sex therapist? So, of course, we got married, and with high standards comes high expectations. Big disappointments. <laughs> and big disappointments. All right. You know, in my family, conflict was really hot, and in his family, conflict was really cold. And so we, we did kind of have an inkling about we didn't want to replicate our families. I actually started my marriage family therapy course right about as we got married. And he was in grad school, and I was thinking, you know, he's going to be studying all the time, right? And so I should be doing something too. thought I'd study and am imagining all these cozy times of studying together with cool, hot study breaks. No, he wanted to study in the library, which was an hour and a half away. And suddenly this, this desire not to replicate our families I, I felt this creeping doubt, mm. and sex, we got it all wrong. One of us initiated with touch, and that felt invasive to the other, and the other one initiated with words, and that left the other one cold, and And it was like, you know, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but I couldn't quite turn the turn the chapter on it, and, and then... My husband started traveling. He actually did go into a ministry, and he would travel for his living, and it was over the weekend, which is a tough time when you're a young mom because everybody does family on the weekends. Exactly. And so he was gone, and I had, like, day one, I would miss him, and day two, I'd be a little irritated, and day three, I was angry. 
Day four, you don't want him to come back. Day four, he was totally dead to me, you know. Uh, And then he'd come home day six, and and for me, um, the the audience knows that I'm a sexual pursuer, and I'm thinking day six, it's been six days, let's go, let's reconnect sexually, and he's dead meat and just tired and can't do that. And and then by the time he's ready, I'm just angry and probably a bitch. And like, he doesn't want to reconnect with me. And so we did that for many, many years. Yeah, what's so sad is I'm listening to your stories. That story is being replicated in millions of relationships all over and nobody's talking about it. That's right. That's right. I didn't know attachment theory at this point. Um, I was living it. But it seemed like the more I wanted for him, the more he backed away. And I was a very classic pursuer. I kind of recorded everything. I probably had it on a calendar, George. I mean, literally, like, I had children at this point and how many hours my husband was at home with us, how many hours he was spending with the children, how many times we had sex. I was keeping track and feeling more and more disappointed and waited and waited for initiation and it just seemed to be driving us over the edge and and eventually we did get to the edge basically and the marriage seemed like it was over Mm. and i remember the only thing that made any sense was i felt like i could see that what i was doing wasn't working and i knew i absolutely knew what he was not doing and and how he was, his problems were. But I really did have a tiny glimpse that I was suffocating the marriage. And I had a sense that, okay, this path is certain death for the marriage. And I, I thought the other path, though, it, it felt to me like I was stepping off a cliff, mm. like I was going to step off into the rocks. And I didn't know... What was going to happen? I decided it was worth the risk. I thought, you know, maybe Superman will come or maybe God will catch me or maybe there's a parachute. I I didn't know, but I knew that going forward the way I was going wasn't going to work. And the crazy thing was it, it was a really clumsy attempt. And, of course, my husband has his own story about this. His story is more about what he did (laughs) and how he came forward. Uh, My story was how I stood still and began to become more patient and wait. Um, And you were both right. And we were probably both right and still right. Um, I I think I didn't feel a lot. I told myself the thing that all pursuers tell themselves, you need too much. You shouldn't need Mm -hmm. it all. The only way through this is to stop needing and all these things, because I really didn't understand yet about vulnerable asking and that as a pursuer, you could ask and you have to learn to accept no, which is really tough. But I, I didn't quite get it other than, you know, I think at that time, I think I was making up attachment theory. <laughs> I was living it. Uh, but the space between us started opening up and things, we became closer. You know, my husband seemed to want to spend more time with me. Uh, sex wasn't fraught anymore with all my counting, which was good, which was better. I think I began to see how fearful he was of conflict. Mm. And also, I think that I saw his fear of not being good enough. And I was able for, I remember specifically just telling myself, just have mercy on this. And at the time, I was teaching a premarital class, right? All the things I knew about marriage at that point. <laughs> 
But what struck me was that all the couples came back for sex therapy. These were young couples. And they were not impacted by aging or by having been married for so long or by children. But they all had sexual problems. And I, I think I felt hopeful. It's like, okay, I'm not alone. This is something that happens in early marriage. And lots of people have sexual issues. And it literally gave me kind of a peek into their bedrooms. And that was actually encouraging to me. And as I began to work with them and see that it could be healed in my own life and with the thousands of others eventually that I worked with, it gave me a lot of hope about uh, working with sex. And so I became, um, I decided to become a sex therapist, really to help other people do it better. I wanted to help people who had been like my husband and I, who had come from rigid and inhibited backgrounds and I mean, I think some people think you become a sex therapist because you're so wild. That was not my story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a it's such a redemptive story. I mean, it reminds me when you said the space between us got a little bit bigger. Viktor Frankl, who wrote Search for Meaning, a Holocaust survivor, says that there's an event that happens and then there's our response to the event. And for most people, it's so immediate. You know, most partners don't recognize that the way they're surviving, which is so human, they don't get the cost that it is doing to their partner. But what Viktor Frankl says is there's actually a space in between those two mm-hmm. of the event and our response. And in that of space is our choice. Yeah. Right? So it's such a beautiful redemptive story of how you started to slow a process down and you start to have more of a choice and how you you took that choice to actually want to share that with other people to see, to see how they could kind of do this differently. Because most of us don't get a manual, right? We're set up to miss each other, especially sexually. And then we start to blame ourselves. So what a, what a brilliant story. Right. And we made two decisions that I think changed our lives. We decided to go into couples therapy together and try to figure it out. And we went with somebody who really gave some bad advice in the beginning. And then we went to uh, somebody who gave us, uh, who really helped us in processing. And we also made a life commitment that this would be the generation where the buck stopped, um, not blaming who came before us and hopefully not passing it on to our children. I was at this wedding, um, a friend of my husband's actually, and his daughter was getting married and there were his parents, the groom's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all still married. And then two like huge church families and there was so much love supporting this young couple, just a legacy of love. And I was remarking to him, I said, we can't give our children this. We come from families that are broken all the way back, divorce, and we don't have this. It's the the sins of the father is this proverb that says are passed down for four generations. And definitely four generations back for us was a lot of marital brokenness. And he said, there's a second part to that scripture, and I'm probably going to cry because I always cry when I say this. But he said, the legacy of a righteous man endures for a thousand generations. Mm. And he said, so if you change this generation, you basically change the world. You change the future for your own children, but forever. And so that was the commitment that we made, that we would be that generation that learned to love each other. Mm. Amen. That's beautiful. So I have hope, and I want people to have hope about changing their lives, both emotionally, sexually, so that they really have love to 
love their children and to go forward. And our listeners can't see. We're in a room together, so it's touching for me to see Lori's tears. And I can relate to, you know, in these moments of adversity and struggle that you find your way closer to your partner and how that doesn't just change your relationship. It changes the way your kids are going to see the world and their kids for generations to come. It's, It's such a powerful story. So thank you for asking. Again, you're listening to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. Keep it hot. Hi, Foreplay fam. The biggest support you can give us is sharing our podcast with a friend. You can find us also on socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'd love your questions and feedback and really do use these to guide our show. We'd also love it if you'd rate and review us. If you're interested in learning more about us and our mission, look us up on our hot new website, foreplayradiosextherapy.com. Call in your questions to the Foreplay Question voicemail. Dial 833-MY-4PLAY. That's 833-4PLAY. And we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes. All content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor. 